0: A reading from the book of Luke. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin— does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later... The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord.
1: Have you ever been to one of those uh, Brazilian barbecue places? Uh, I think Fogo de Chao is is one of the popular ones uh, in in the Twin Cities here. it is. If you've never been, it is quite the experience. Uh, You pay a flat price for an all-you-can-eat meal. And so they bring around, as you're sitting at your table, they bring around these skewers with various meats. And they ask you, would you like some of this? Would you like some of this? And the answer is always yes. Give me more on my plate. But they do try to trick you at the beginning. They give you a plate to go to the salad bar, which is just a trick to get you to fill up on food that is not meat, wasting that incredibly valuable real estate that you have in your stomach that is supposed to be dedicated completely to the delicious feast of Brazilian barbecued meat. And so they give you, when you go there, they give each diner, you get one of these cards. And one side is green and the other side is red. And so as long as that green side is up, that means that the servers need to keep bringing skewers of delicious meat to your table. And it's always a, and and there's always that really sad moment when you just give up and you quit. And you flip it over to red and you say, "My, my stomach can take no more. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's kind of how I feel when I'm looking at a text like Luke 15 for for preaching. It's like you could just leave the green side up and preach through this for a whole month. But at some point you have to turn it over to red. It's maybe the single greatest chapter of Jesus' teaching in all of Scripture. Certainly it rivals the Sermon on the Mount. And it shows that Jesus is a master storyteller. With just a few words and three simple stories, he can teach us more about God's character and God's kingdom and God's grace than thousands of pages of systematic theology ever could. And when standing before this chapter, we are standing before a great feast. And so it's hard to know where to start digging in, and it's equally as difficult to know where one should stop. We can't savor everything this passage has to offer. We can only sample a few of its flavors, but we have the sure and certain knowledge that we will be able to revisit this mortgage board again and again and again. And Jesus tells three parables about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son in response to the grumbling of the Pharisees and scribes about Jesus' practice of, of welcoming and eating with tax collectors and sinners. And their objection was that Jesus was extending the message and welcome of the kingdom to those people before they got their lives together. Now, no one would have objected if Jesus had eaten with these people and welcomed them after these notorious sinners had gotten their lives together and become good, righteous, Torah-observant Jews. Not even the scribes and Pharisees would have objected to that. In fact, they would have celebrated it. Here, Jesus is making people get their lives right. But what Jesus is doing seems to them to be getting everything backwards. The way it's supposed to work, according to the scribes and Pharisees, is that you get right, and then you get God. That's how the equation works. What Jesus is preaching and doing and saying is that God gets you. And that's what gets you right. God moves first. And then your life changes. And so what we see here is not just a difference of opinion. But this is a difference in worldview. One is religion. The other is grace. The one says, do this. The other says, it's done. The one says, we get to God. The other says, God gets to us. And so a religious life is marked by solemnity and austerity and rigidity. But a grace life is marked by bounteousness and joy and celebration. And so the truth is that grace is hard to deal with. We think it sounds so nice, so wonderful. Who would prefer religion over grace when we, when we, when we present it like that? But, but it's not fair. And it seems too good to be true. And it seems too good to be true for both the prodigal and the elder brother, as we will see. But grace continues to issue this invitation to join the party nevertheless, to accept it's too good to be true, so it must be godness, so that we can stop running or stop fighting and start celebrating. There's a strong part of us, I think something innate, within us that rejects that offer because we don't want to go to any party that welcomes those people, whoever they are. And we don't want to be given anything. We want to do something. We want to work for something. We want to somehow earn our way into the kingdom. And we want other people to do the same. And at best, it's sort of a a grace for me, but not for the type of mentality that we often carry around. There's a brilliant illustration of this, uh, an old story that the rabbis told about a hardworking, God-fearing farmer. And so the Lord appears to him and he says, you are a righteous, God-fearing man. I will give you three things that you ask for. But the only condition is this, that whatever I give you, I will give double to your neighbor. So the farmer asked first for 100 cattle. God gave it to him. And this made him happy. But then he saw that his neighbor had been given 200. He Got a little upset. So next the farmer asked God for 100 acres of land. And God gave it to him. And he was happy. But then he saw that his neighbor had 200 acres of land. And this made him very upset. And so the last thing that the farmer asked for was this. He said, Lord, make me blind in one eye. And God wept. See, the Pharisees grumble and the prodigals flee from grace, as do we. And we can come up with 101 different reasons why we can't believe or won't believe in this. Why we'll reject or run away from this God who offers us this grace. You know, we'll say, okay, but yeah, 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 yeah. The the church is full of hypocrites. That's a reason to reject God's grace. And, And my response to that is always, no, no, no. The church is not full of hypocrites. There is always room for one more. You know, the the, the Bible is outdated and oppressive. Christianity is too exclusive. There's got to be more than one way up the mountain. I, I, I can't choose between faith and science. You know, yada, yada, yada. Any excuse to reject or to run away from or object to or rebel against this grace. Because it's just too good for us. But the good news of Luke 15 is that grace pursues us. And when we're lost, it comes and finds us like a shepherd looking for a lost sheep, a woman looking for a lost coin, or a father looking for a lost son. And each one of these parables, like like a diamond, reveals one of the facets, the beautiful facets of God's relentless grace. In the first parable, Jesus asks the Pharisees to imagine that they're a shepherd watching a hundred sheep with one that has gone astray. And what we miss, because we're so far culturally removed from this, is that even in his framing of this parable, Jesus is pushing the Pharisees' buttons. Because though plenty of the Bible's great heroes were were shepherds, Moses, King David, even Abraham, by, by, by the time of Jesus, shepherds were regarded as a rather suspect bunch, especially by people like the Pharisees. Shepherds, they, they slept outside, and so they were dirty. They, they didn't have the wherewithal to maintain the strict standards of ritual purity. They were notorious for having their flocks wander on everyone's land, even if it didn't belong to them. And so they were kind of scoundrels and scallywags in the culture. People you just couldn't trust, because they were always moving around. And so Pharisees and scribes, they, they loathed shepherds. And yet here is Jesus asking them to imagine you're one of these people, those people. Not many shepherds would have had a hundred sheep. If you had a hundred sheep, you had enough money to pay someone to take care of those sheep for you. You could have hired a shepherd. So what we have going on here is is a shepherd who's a part of some kind of co-op, collective with his family. And so it's, it's quite common for relatives to herd their sheep together, and then one person would be responsible for caring for them. They could take turns, share the load. And so what's happened is that this unfortunate shepherd has lost one of his sheep. He's lost one of the one that belongs to the whole. And so if he doesn't get it back, the loss is on him. And he'll be responsible for replacing it. And he'll have let the entire cooperative down. And so what we see is that grace cannot be content with losing someone or something that belongs to it. And so it goes out and searches high and low. And when it finds what has wandered away, And it's found it is a cause for great rejoicing, even though this heavy sheep, this bleeding helpless sheep, has to be carried high over hill and dale back to the rest of the flock. And so what this parable teaches us is that God's grace pursues us when we've wandered away. But more than that. God's grace is willing to bear the burden of bringing us back, just like this shepherd slinging this sheep over his shoulders. And commentators throughout the church's history have seen in this an image, this image of the shepherd carrying the sheep on his shoulders, a picture of Christ on the cross. Jesus seeks us when we've wandered away. He carries our weight, He takes the risk, He rescues us from danger and restores it. And the best part about it, is that he doesn't do it begrudgingly or reluctantly. He does it joyfully. He rejoices when he finds the sheep. And he knows he has to carry it. And so Jesus is saying, what can we do when one sinner repents, when one of the lost sheep comes home, but rejoice? But our problem with God's grace that that pursues us and gladly bears the burden to bring us home is this, we don't think we're worth it. We can't imagine that we could possibly matter that much to God. We're just one lousy person. One measly sinner. And so is everyone else. But when we're rescued and restored by Jesus, there isn't just joy here on earth, but up in heaven. Grace means you matter that much each of you, matter that much. You're worth pursuing. You're worth carrying home. You're as valuable as a lost wedding ring, which is analogous to what we see in the second parable about the woman with the lost coin. So a woman in that day and age, it was quite common to wear your dowry as a piece of jewelry. So the dowry is the the bride price or sort of the property or wealth or money that you bring with you into your marriage. Um, you, if you didn't have a dowry, you couldn't get married. So you would bring this with you into your marriage, and, and one way to keep it safe was to always keep it on your person. That was incredibly valuable. So you would take a, a dowry, ten coins, make it a necklace or a headdress, and you'd always wear that around. So it was like a, like a like a wedding ring. And so the coin, it wasn't just... Money. It was so much more than that. Like wedding rings today. And this parable actually hits very close to home. Uh, A few uh, years ago, um, Amy's engagement ring went missing. So, you know, the wedding band was on. Sometimes Amy takes her engagement ring off at night. It gets dry under there. So, at least that's what she tells me for sometimes why she takes it off. But, um, and so she did that, she sets it on the bedside table one day. Engagement ring, missing. But it's our house, it's our bedroom, it's upstairs. Of course it's going to turn up. And then it didn't. Kyle was probably two or three at the time. And so we asked him if he'd taken it. And he said, no. So we couldn't find the ring. Looked everywhere. Emptied every drawer in our bedroom. I took the grates off of the central air, you know, that's coming up to our room. And I stuck my hands down and found all the nasty things that had fallen in there. I even vacuumed the room and opened the dirty, dusty bag to sift through its contents to see if we could find this ring. Nada. We searched high and low in every nook and cranny. And it, and it was like it had vanished into thin air. And then one day... I was looking in one of the toy bins in our living room, and lo and behold, what did I find at the bottom? But Amy's ring. Kyle had taken it and hidden it. And he's a pastor's kid, so don't give him any grief about this. He has a hard enough time already, but this is like like a perfect story. And when I found it, I was so mad at him. But I was so relieved and overjoyed. It was this strange mixture of emotions because I found this thing that was so valuable that I thought I'd never find again. And there it was. It was this just wonderful mixture of euphoria and disbelief and relief mixed into that one moment. And that's what God's gracious pursuit of us is like. God is like a woman who turns her whole house upside down, looking for a missing piece of her wedding jewelry. And God's pursuit of us is that tireless, that relentless, and we're that precious that God's joy is that great when he finds us. And notice that in both of these parables, the person who finds what they've lost does the same thing. They call together their friends and their neighbors, and they say, Rejoice! Celebrate with me. When grace finds us, it is such a cause for celebration that the best earthly approximation we can give of what's happening in heaven is to throw a party, a really good party. If there's anything that the church should be known for, it should be known for throwing really, really good parties. That's one of the things I love so much about the the, the live podcast that we did, Mike, at the, the VFW a week and a half ago now was that, you know, regardless of whether the podcast was good or not, you know, sort of who cares, it was the party was really, 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 really good. People were having a lot of fun, and, and not just for any old reason, but for the reason that we were talking about and gathered around uh, celebrating and exploring the Christian story, as we called it, the Christian myth. That's, that's the greatest story ever told, more exciting, more adventurous, more life-transforming, better than any fable or folktale, and it has the advantage of being true. And we said, that's awesome. And so we got a bunch of friends together and had a party. And that's heavenly. It's heavenly. And that's what's so great about these parables. These aren't just stories. They really tell us what God is like. What grace is like. What we're worth to God. And this picture that they they give of God is so beautiful. It should melt even the hardest of hearts. Grace is real. God will find you. Now, what are you going to do about it? Which brings us to the last parable the parable of the father with two sons, both of whom, at various points in the parable, find themselves lost. Both of whom he finds, one of whom we know comes back home, the other one, it's a cliffhanger. What's he going to do? Will he join the party? So grace is real. The question that confronts us is, will you join the party? The younger son knows that grace is real because he did everything in his power to reject it, to run away from his father. He asked for his share of the inheritance, saying, Dad, you're you're dead to me. He left his father and family in shame, and he went to live off in a far country. And that, you know... In this day and age, kids go live all kinds of places all over the country now. It doesn't mean anything. But in that day and age, when the land itself was sacred, right? If you live in the holy land, uh, that's a big deal. You go live in the unholy land, you've definitely downgraded in terms of where you're moving. And it was shameful. So he went and lived in a far country with a bunch of Gentiles. And he wasted all of his family's wealth. And when a famine came, he was so hungry that he longed to dine on the bitter, disgusting pods that the pigs ate. And then he came to his senses. And he said, even though I'm no longer my father's son, his hired servants are treated ten times better than I am. I will return home and tell my father that even though I'm no longer in the family, I can still earn my keep as one of his hired men. And so he had this whole speech rehearsed. And he must have practiced it over and over and over again as he walked back to what used to be his home. And he he was prepared to face the shame and the anger and the consequences and rejection that came with that. See, the younger son understood repentance, he understood that he needed to acknowledge and own his sin, he understood the consequences of his sin, that he was no longer in the family. He had renounced that right. He could never, ever, ever, ever get it back. No matter how sorry he was or how hard he worked. He understood that his sin had separated him. That he was now on the outside. But what he didn't understand as he began that journey home was grace. And because he didn't understand grace, he he couldn't understand the true depth of his sin and the unfathomable depths of his father's love. Because when he started home, he thought the worst thing that he had done was he had brought shame upon his family and he had wasted what had been given to him, that he ashamed his father's name. But all of that paled in comparison to what the real sin was, that he had rejected his father as his father. In taking his inheritance and leaving the family home for the far country, he said, in effect, I don't want to be your son anymore. And I don't want you to be my father. It wasn't about the stuff. It was about the relationship. But the reality of grace that runs out and meets him on the road is this. God doesn't just want us back. Taking back his son as a hired hand is not good enough. If God is going to bring us back, he wants us back as his children. And God does whatever it takes to do that, which means bearing our shame on himself and clothing us with the honor that belongs to only him. And so in running and greeting him on the road, the father gets there before anyone else in the village does. If anyone else from the village or the household had seen this son, a lynch mob could have formed to drag him before his father to give the father the honor of casting the first stone. But by running out and bringing him into town, the father is covering the shame of his son. He puts his best robe on him, a sign of great honor. And and he puts his ring on his finger, a sign saying he's back in the family. And he puts shoes on his feet because, you know, Hired workers or slaves might walk around uh, the property in bare feet, but sandals meant that he belonged. And he killed the fatted calf, which meant the return of this younger son wasn't something that they would do surreptitiously or secretly, you know, sort of say, he's back. No, no, no. He's saying, this is a cause for celebration for the entire village. Everyone come out. We are going to feast for days. And so grace means that no matter how far we stray, no matter what we do, no matter how lost we are, we can always be found. We can always be welcomed back home. We can always rejoin our true family. And that's reason to party. And if the parable stopped here, it it would be natural for it to stop here. Three things lost, they're found. We rejoice. That's great. But then there's the twist. The older son who is in his own way lost who in his own way rejects his father and refuses to be his son because when he hears the commotion he refuses to join the party and that in and of itself would have been a huge affront a huge act to bring shame upon his father because as the oldest son you're expected to sort of be the host of the party so he sulks and brings shame upon his father but the father goes out and he pleads with his older son. He says, come, join the party. Because that's what you do when grace comes to town. You celebrate. But the older son is in no celebrating mood because it just isn't fair. It's too good to be true. He's always been the good son. He says, I've never disobeyed one of your commands. He won't even address his father as father. He says, look. That's his first word to his dad. Look, you I've never disobeyed any of your commands. Sounds like a a Pharisee here. He says, I've never even gotten a young goat to share with my friends. And here this son of yours, he can't bring himself to refer to him as his brother. He says, this son of yours gets the fatted calf treatment. And the most telling statement of all comes, though, when he says, many years have I served you. But the, the actual Greek word here for serve is he says, many years have I slaved for you. I've slaved for you all of these years, Dad, and I haven't gotten a thing for it. So even though he hasn't rejected his father with his way of life like the the younger son, the prodigal son, he has rejected his father through his obedience in his heart. He too has run away from home. But grace pursues even the older brother. It finds him and entreats him to join the party. And we're left to wonder... If he does, what's he going to do? And we're left to wonder if we too have accepted this invitation. Or are we still trying to deal with God on our own terms? Like the two lost sons who can't accept the reality of grace until it takes them by the hand. Grace that would welcome home a prodigal as a son or grace that would go out to reason with a sulking older son whose words reveal that he views his relationship not as father-son, but master-slave. But God's gracious invitation to both is come home. Be my child and I will be your father. And I will move heaven and earth. I will bring heaven to earth to find you. Grace is that. Amazing. Let's party. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.